Welcome to the Animal Chat Podcast with me, Matthew Payne. And me, Harry Ekman. And how are you doing this week, Matthew? Uh, Matthew, Jesus. Um, <laughs> have I done something wrong? Um, <laughs> I am really good, thank you very much, Mr. Harry Ekman. How the devil are you? I'm doing very well. We have some good news, Oh, Matt. hit me. I always like good news. Well, you remember what seems like a lifetime ago now, we asked people to write in and send us messages. <laughs> like Blue Peter. Exactly. And we didn't hear diddly squat Nothing. from anyone. Nothing. Not a dicky bird. And we were really explicit. We, we You know, it's not hard. Well, that, <laughs> that bullying yep. uh, actually paid off because we have had two people respond to us. Hit me. Well, the first person is uh, called Marta Donascimento. Yeah. And she has been an avid follower of the podcast and she's been sharing the podcast and saying some very nice things about it. Yeah. So I'm guessing she's been receiving the checks that we've been sending yeah. her. I guess we want to give a shout out to her and say thank you so much for supporting the podcast yeah, and definitely. sharing and liking and enjoying it. Yeah. Thank you very much, Marta. Cheers, Marta. And we've had also a message from David Foster. David explicitly mentioned the fact that he was feeling bullied into leaving a message. And fair point, David, it was bullying, but this isn't the workplace, so there's not really anything you can do about it. But it worked. So I think that's the lesson for this week's podcast. Bullying works. Exactly. That's the thing. Just take that away. If you're young and you should be listening to this anyway, because it's got swearing in it. But, you know, bullying works. That is the message that Harry and I want to give out. Also, Harry... I've remembered we had another person as well. We didn't. That's three. We did. Yeah, listen, three. This is on Instagram from someone called, uh, well, I say someone called, I know who she is. It's Dr. Jenna Kiddy. So, hello, Jenna. Jenna. Oh, I know Jenna. Hello, Jenna. Do you know Jenna? I know Jenna. From the organisation that I work for. So, yeah. So, thank you, Jenna. She put in two amazing reviews, almost, of two of our episodes. Heavily criticised you, Harry. That's fair enough. But we won't go into that. But uh, but thank you very much for the people getting in touch and to all the people that haven't got in touch. There's still time. There's still time. But we know who you are and we because know. we use Google Analytics. We know who you are. Yep. We know you're listening. We know you're hearing us yep. and you're just not doing anything about I'm it. I'm talking so... to you, the person listening to this in Oregon or Ohio in America. You know who you are. You know, We know where you live. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear so, so, so Harry yes traumatic news for the listeners I know we're going to take a month or so off aren't we Harry we are so this is going to be the last Animal Chat podcast not forever Harry and I have just got to Harry's got to go and get a reverse vitectomy <laughs> um, and I've got to go and um, get an extra arm put on all these sort of things but uh, how are you going to use your time Harry how am I going to use my time yeah. I'm going to take up watercolours and nice. knitting. Nice. And what about you? Um, I'm thinking about experimenting with some form of meditation while at the same time starting an insect-based diet. Wow. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, anyway, so Harry and I are just going to have uh, about a month off, aren't we, Harry? Yes. But we will be back on August the 8th, which is a Saturday for those of you that are a bit rain man and, and know the dates and months and weeks immediately. Or rain woman. Or rain woman. Yeah, we're not going to discriminate on this podcast. Yep. 
August the 8th, we normally release our podcasts on a Friday, but August the 8th is in fact a Saturday. And it's not just any Saturday, Matt. Do you know what Saturday it is? Is it International Glove Day? It is not International Glove Day. That is the following week. International Cactus Day? International Cactus Day is September. You know that, Matt. We've talked about this. Is it International Live Tyler Day? Every day is International Live Tyler Day. <laughs> it is. August the 8th is International Cat Day, sponsored and supported by International Cat Care. And we are doing a special International Cat Day episode featuring the one and only Ian McFarlane. But more about that at the end of this podcast, because Ian can wait. Yeah, definitely. But we have to talk about this week's podcast, Matt. Holy moly. Now, I've got a little bit of a clue here. Now, this isn't the opening to Michael Jackson's Thriller. It is, in fact... Now, that is actually, in all seriousness, one of my favourite sounds of nature. That is the sound of a pack of wolves howling. That's enough of that. (laughs) (laughs) I wondered how long you were going to let that go, so I decided to just stay silent. You know who we've got? So who's our guest today, Harry? Well... The guest this week is, I am very, very excited about this, is David Meach. Now, David Meach, like we mentioned at the end of last week's episode, the name David Meach might not be immediately recognizable for people that don't work in wolf research or animal welfare, but David has been so influential in wolf conservation, in wolf research. He has spent decades studying wolves out in nature, in their environment, in the United States, in these remote wilderness places, observing their behavior and how they interact. He was involved in wolves becoming protected under the Endangered Species Act in the United States. And we have learned so much from the research that David has done, not just on wolf behavior, but it has actually influenced dog behavior as well. Sometimes not in the right way at all. And we're going to cover that in this week's episode. But David really was an absolute gentleman and a delight to speak to. Now, I should just mention that there were a couple of dodgy sound issues in this episode. There's some digital millisecond dropout. So I hope that doesn't spoil everybody's enjoyment of this episode. You can still hear it absolutely fine. It's just, it's a little bit noticeable in a couple of places. Just wanted to point that out. But other than that, This is such a great interview with David. It was such a wonderful experience to speak to him and get insight from somebody that's been working on wolf conservation for 60 years, 62 years. Unbelievable, isn't it? And I think that, you know, when we have these conversations, there are moments where I think with people, with David, where you just feel quite humble to have the opportunity to speak to him. Absolutely. You know, I work for a canine charity. There's very little of our work that we do that it hasn't been influenced by David. If you look into any research to do with canine behaviour, and particularly dog training, as you mentioned, and we do cover this, there's very little that hasn't been influenced by David and his research. Such privilege, such privilege. And David doesn't do many podcasts, so... We were very lucky. Yeah. So let's not mess around. Let's get stuck in with this week's episode of Animal Chat with David Meach.
you've had a very long and incredible career, but where did that all come from, David? Where was your interest in animals? Where does that root from, your love of animals, your interest in animals? Well, um, it, this, this may sound contradictory, but I started out as a teenager um, as a fur trapper. So I like to trap muskrats and mink and foxes and those kind of animals. And in order to do that, uh, in order to catch them, you, you know, you have to know something about them. So, of course, I read up on, on the animals and their habits and that kind of thing. And um, I was quite intrigued with their habits and also uh, was interested in particular in the types of fur bearers that had to hunt for a living. So even though I trapped muskrats, I was much more interested in mink because a mink is a hunter and uh, muskrats, they just eat the vegetation, basically. And so got interested in carnivores, mink, foxes, that kind of uh, animal. And when I learned that a person could actually have a, a career in studying these kinds of animals, I decided that's what I wanted to do for my life. When and where was this? Well, th this was in um, central New York State, south of the Adirondack Mountains, although I did spend quite a bit of time in the Adirondacks. And uh, when I'm, I'm 83 right now, so it was uh, when I was um, basically 12, 13, 14, probably 14 years old, somewhere at that time. And I was just beginning to be exposed to higher education and knowing that I was going to be going on to college to try to study something. I had, I had been interested in science for many years, even by that time, but my interest focused more on astronomy at that time until I started fur trapping. And then I got very, very interested in wildlife. You said you were very interested in higher education at that point, David. Did you go on to university then and go to to study carnivores and begin your research at that point, or did that come at a later stage? Uh, yes. I attended Cornell University uh, in 1954. That's when I entered. And um, within another year or two, I was hired on to do some work on a black bear project, studying black bears as a, an assistant to the main researcher doing the project. That project involved life trapping bears. And, and as you know, I've always been interested in trapping. So we would spend the summer trapping these bears and um, putting ear tags on them, measuring them, weighing the animals, um, taking blood samples at different times and doing various types of things with the animals. And I just loved uh, handling these bears and working with them and studying them. The idea was that this was before radio tracking, um, so we couldn't put a radio collar on the bear. Nobody had one at that time. All we could do was put an ear tag on them, and then if somebody captured the bear some other place, uh, if it got hit by a car, if some hunter shot it, we'd have two points, and we'd know how far that bear traveled, straight line, between those two points. So that was the idea of the study. And um, it seems a little actually humorous right now because with a radio collar on an animal, uh, you can get two points in, in two minutes. <laughs> uh, it took us <laughs> a lot of live trapping of bears and then 
if someday that particular bear or a particular ear tag bear was returned by a, a hunter or someone who hit it with a car, then we'd have a second point that could be two years later. But we did, wow. you know, we we still learn something about the animal that way. Wow, that's fascinating. And that was, I did all that during the summer while I was going to Cornell during the rest of the year. So just getting the chance to work with these bears during the summer helped me get through all the studies in the coursework for the rest of the year because I could see that by studying these college courses, it would allow me after I graduated to do more work, the kind of work I was doing in the summer already. That is wildlife research. Forgive me for being naive here, David, but how do you, did you say you, you live trapped the bears? Is that correct? We had two ways of catching these bears. Some bears were eating at garbage dumps or in someone's backyard or something. And those bears, uh, to catch them, we had a, a big piece of culvert pipe uh, mounted on two wheels on a trailer that we could drive around with a pickup truck and plant this trailer at the garbage dump or in someone's backyard or whatever. And it was a trap. We put bait in there. There was a big iron door on one end of the trap. The other end it was closed. So when the bear went to the trap, he'd try to get the bait and the door would fall in behind him. And so if we caught the bear that way, of course, then we still had to figure out how to get air tags on them. So we sprayed ether. We sprayed ether into that big tube, into that culvert pipe. And uh, we then, um, when the bear went to sleep, we pulled him out of the culvert pipe, put a pail uh, with ether in it uh, next to his nose. So if it started coming out of the drug, uh, we would then put the pail back over his nose and keep him under. Then we'd hoist him up on a big scale and weigh him, uh, measure him, ear tags on him, that type of thing, and turn him loose. The other way, the second way that we live trapped these bears was with large uh, foot traps, the kind that trappers use. And uh, bears have big, very thick uh, feet. And uh, when they step in one of these traps, it doesn't really cause permanent injury. It may hurt the animal at the time, but it, it doesn't damage the foot. We had special ways of fastening the trap so that wouldn't really hurt them. And then, so when a bear was caught in one of these traps, in one of these foot traps, we had a long pipe with a, a loop of chain on the end of it. And one of us would um, put that loop over the bear's neck, and then we could twist the loop and have uh, that person with the pipe. It, the pipe had a T handle, like a T-shaped handle. So we could hold on to that pipe with the, the handle and um, twist it until we cinched up the bear's neck, one person would hold the bear's tight like that, and then another one would take a rope and grab one of the feet. Usually they're caught by the front foot, so one of those front feet would be in a trap, and we'd catch the other front foot and tie it out to a tree, and then we'd have to get the two back feet, each one, and tie it out to a tree until we had the bear spread eagled, and we'd have him on his back, so now with his Got a trap on one foot that's hooked up to something, and then ropes on his other feet that are tied out to trees, and then someone holding his uh, head with this pipe. And then we could walk up to the bear, and we would have to inject a drug into the bear's abdomen. Now there's better drugs you can put right into a muscle, but at that time, 
The only drug possible was to inject it into the abdomen. We had to make sure it didn't go into a gut. It would have to go between the guts. We had a certain way of holding the abdomen muscle such that we could be sure that the drug would go into the abdominal cavity, but not into the gut. And then that bear would go to sleep and uh, we would then unhook him and we do our at that time, weigh the bear, put the ear tags on, measure him, uh, that type of thing, and then let him wake up. Wow. Wow. How many, how many people must that have taken? Because they're, what, a few hundred kilos of black bear? Actually, we did it with two people, usually. Wow. One, one, wow. Grabbed the bear, one would, would put the choker around his neck and hold him, and then the other person would tie a foot out and then grab another foot and tie it out, and it worked quite well. That's amazing. Wow. You can imagine how much um, fun that would be for a bunch of college kids, eh? Oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. If only that course was still available now. Yeah. <laughs> I was actually thinking you probably would have had to have uh, maybe played a game of rock, paper, scissors, or who was going to pull the shortest straw to see who was going to have to go and inject the bear that had been spread eagled. And I can imagine it was very grumpy at the time. Yeah, it worked out well. And incidentally, there's pictures of all this on my website, davemeach.org or davemeach.com, one of them. There's pictures of, of us doing that on there if you ever want to look at it. No, absolutely. Oh, amazing. We'll definitely put them in the link to this podcast so people listening can go and uh, have a look. So you were working with black bears there, um, David. How did you transition? Did you transition from that going straight into wolves? Or yes. were there other species you began to look into? No, um, I did that as an undergraduate. And then before I actually graduated, I was looking into graduate school and... Um, a professor who had a big grant to study wolves and moose uh, on Isle Royal in Lake Superior. That's a very large island. It's uh, 210 square miles. And um, uh, the only main prey that the wolf has there is moose. And the only uh, predator that the moose has is the wolf. And so he wanted me to do my graduate work on that study. And of course, I jumped at that right away. And this was a time when wolves were still being decimated, weren't they? Yes, yes, it is. Uh, they were unprotected. They were gone from most states. This, this, this was in 1958. Hmm. And the only place in the 48 states, um, there were wolves in Alaska yet, but in the 48 contiguous states, the only place where there were wolves at that time primarily was Minnesota and then Isle Royal, which is really part of the state of Michigan. It's closer to Minnesota, but it's part of the state. Michigan. Michigan had a few wolves at that time uh, left, and Wisconsin did as well. But those three states were the only ones in the, US, in the 48 states that had any wolves. So uh, being able to study them was a, a real privilege because there weren't many places in the 48 states where they actually lived. And how much was your research at that time inspired by the previous research that had been done into the wolves? I'm thinking of um, Rudolf Schenkel. And I believe 1947, he's researching to wolves at the time. Yes, but he was studying the um, wolves in captivity. So uh, really what we were doing in the wild, with wild wolves really had uh, very little to do with what Schenkel had done with the wolves in captivity. There had only been three, about three other studies, four other studies of wolves in the wild when I started this one. So those other ones were the ones that were more relevant to what I was doing. And what were... 
where you were working, was it quite remote or were the communities around? And if so, what was their relationship? No, no, it was totally remote. It was an island in Lake Superior. Closest distance to the shore was 15 miles. There's no cities, no state, no, um, actually, there's no people on the island from uh, about uh, September through May. Uh, the only time there's any people is from May during the summer when people can get out there in boats. It's a national park and it's total wilderness. That must have been an amazing experience for you. Yeah, it was a real privilege to work studying the wolves and moose. Most of the data I gathered was during winter. I had three winters in which we had a small aircraft, a pilot, and then I sat in the back seat. And uh, during the winter, we flew around, tracked the wolves around in the snow. It was a pack of 15 to 16. And we tracked them around for three winters, followed them while they hunted moose, and we gathered our data that way. And the studies that you did and the data that you gathered, was that pertinent in relation to ultimately protecting wolves under the Endangered Species Act? Was it related to that? Well, it was in the sense that that study that we did got a great deal of publicity. The first uh, publication was in National Geographic, and um, that went to millions of people. And um, this was just before the Federal Endangered Species Preservation Act was passed. We did the Iowa work from 1958 to 1962. The Federal Endangered Species Preservation Act was passed in 1966. And uh, the fact that we had done the work on Isle Royal was certainly instrumental in the wolf being one of the first animals that was named an endangered species in the 48 states. That's fantastic. Wow. So what were the main findings that you found through this research, David? Well, I I found primarily that uh, wolves had a very hard time, even though there were 15 or 16 of them, very hard time catching moose. And um, of course, that was their only prey during winter. That's what they had to eat. And um, after watching them interact with a total of 131 moose over those three winters, I found that they were only able to kill about 7% of the time they tried to kill moose. They only succeeded about 7%. And when they did, they succeeded because the ones they killed tended to be the oldest ones, the ones that were uh, calves, maybe the youngest ones, and uh, those that had various kinds of debilitations like tapeworms in the lungs and um, winter ticks on the hide, uh, moose that were starving, those kinds of things. That was the main finding from that study. And I might be wrong here, David, please correct me, but was the, the method in which wolves killed their prey often led to a lot of i know in this case there weren't any people around but in other parts of the country a lot of people felt a lot of anger to the way in which wolves sometimes killed their prey they felt that animals suffered and it sort of contributed towards a stereotype or an image that was put on the wolf as a devil animal or a cruel animal and therefore justified the the hunting and the extermination well the attempted sort of extermination of them well um you can't apply human terms to animals. Um, a wolf isn't trying to be cruel, just trying to eat. And it doesn't even matter whether the animal is dead or not. All the wolf needs to do is eat. And sure, they sometimes eat animals that are still alive. I mean, that's just the way it is. Eventually, as they're eating on them, the animal dies. But they don't think of it as uh, we have to kill this animal so we can eat. 
and doing so will be cruel. All they do is try to bite the animal so they can catch it and eat it. And in the process, the easiest way to do that is keep biting at it until it dies. And it sometimes takes a day or so for the animal to die. But that's the way it is. It's only humans that think of this as being cruel. Yes, it's a completely different perception. Now, you published <laughs> what is now, uh, I suppose, infamous in some way. You published a, a book in the 1970s that has had a, an impact that I suspect is um, a burden that still is still there. You published a book in 1970 based on some research earlier that coined the phrase alpha wolf and talked about the dominance of wolves, which you've now debunked. But at the time, this was based on the most modern research and the best understanding that we had of wolves in their environment. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. And what happened there is that Rudolf Schenkel, a German behaviorist, uh, wanted to study wolves. He knew that wolves lived in groups or packs, so he decided to make a pack. And the way he did that was to just recruit a bunch of wolves from various zoos, unrelated animals, throw them together in a group, and uh, see what happened. Well, what happened is they formed, uh, they fought and uh, threatened each other until they formed what we know of in chickens. A lot of people know chickens have a peck order. One chicken dominates another one, etc., until they have a regular dominance hierarchy. And that's what the wolves did when he put all these unrelated wolves together. And, and so he published information about that. But one little flaw, which he didn't know, and in 1970, when I published my book, I didn't know, is that the pack that he made was not a natural pack. It was an artificial one. Well, we knew it was artificial because he put it together, but a pack in the wild doesn't form that way. A bunch of wolves don't just get together and form a pack. Rather, the way a pack starts is just like a human family starts. A maturing male and a maturing female find each other, like each other, stay with each other, pair bond, mate, and have a litter of pups. And that's a pack. So they're not unrelated animals. They're the two, the male and female, are unrelated to each other, but they have no reason to fight each other. They're basically uh, having an affectionate tie with each other. And then they produce the pups, which are then their offspring. And the offspring are all related to the male and the female that produced them. So just a human family is a is an excellent analogy uh, for a wolf pack. And um, in this human family, this adult male, which we would refer to as the father or the breeding male in the pack, and the female is the mother or the breeding female, they're in charge of their offspring and are naturally dominant to them, just like a pair of human parents are dominant to their offspring, uh, their children. So that's the way a wolf pack is organized, not the way Schenkel threw a bunch of adult wolves together and made his artificial pack. So I published, yes, I published a paper explaining that and indicating that contrary to Schenkel's idea about a wolf somehow fighting another wolf and getting to the top of a pack, it doesn't work. The way you get to the top of a pack is to find a mate and produce pups and then you're dominant to those offspring. So because of that, I have suggested that the idea of a top-ranking male in a pack should be called an alpha male. No, it should just be called the father or the breeding male. 
Same thing with the with the female. They don't fight to get to the top. They just mate and produce their own offspring. What journey did you go on in terms of how did you come to change your view, in, essentially, of the structure of a pack and um, the roles and the terminology? Well, um, the main way, actually, I was getting hints of that through many of my studies, but the main way that it really hit me was when I went very far north, up near the North Pole, to a place where there was a wolves that were not afraid of people, and I could live right with those wolves and watch them. And um, I did that with a pack on an island called Ellesmere Island in an area that's about 600 miles south of the North Pole. And those wolves were so far away from other people, they had never been harassed or uh, shot or trapped or anything by people. And so they weren't not, they didn't even know what people were and they were unafraid of people. And so I could, contrary to everywhere else in the world, I could be right with them, like, uh, you know, just a few feet from them and watch what they did. And I studied them as they were raising their pups. And um, that's when it dawned on me that what uh, the organization of a pack really was. It's amazing. How does it feel to know that because this idea of dominance and alpha male is still to this day something that is perpetuated by behaviorists, even though it's been many, many years, several decades since the theory was debunked by the by one of the people that actually was involved in coming up with a theory in, in the first place. You've literally taken your own data and said, I was wrong, this is actually what it's like, and this is correct. And yet this still perpetuates. And so how how does that affect you? Do you get frustrated by that, that people still quote something that is so obviously incorrect now? Well, there's, there's actually a couple of dimensions to that question because the idea of dominance, uh, there's still animals that are dominant to each other. For example, the parent wolves dominate the pups. If the pups are, um, are trying to move too far from the den, one of the parents will go over and grab it, pick it up and take it back to the den. That's dominating that pup. So dominance, I, I haven't said that there's no such thing as dominance. Wolves dominate each other in different ways. The breeding female sometimes dominates the male. When the male comes back with some food, if the male doesn't give that food to the female at the den, the female will grab it out of the male's mouth. She's dominating the male at that time. And when the male wants to mate with the female, he dominates her during the mating season. So there's still dominance. But Calling the animal alpha because it's dominating something is the part that's really uh, that I've tried to correct. And it has corrected for most of the wolf scientists, very seldom in a scientific publication do you find wolf scientists using the term alpha anymore. Every now and then, somebody who hasn't, isn't up on the literature or something might do that. But rarely do I find a scientific publication about wolves that uses a term. However, the term has gotten into the general public media, and um, sometimes even wolf naturalists will use that term. They're naturalists more than actual biologists. And um, sometimes the um, older biologists who forget themselves will sometimes slip in conversation and speak of the alpha male or the alpha female when they all they really need is the breeding male or breeding female. But I don't get frustrated by that. Um, science is self-correcting. We thought one thing at one time. Everybody thought that. 
And now we've learned through science, through research, that that was wrong and that we now have a more accurate outlook on what is going on in a wolf pack. And so we've corrected it. And um, some of the research findings that I've made in the past, somebody else in the future might correct those and or refine them, or, but that's the way science works. So uh, it sometimes takes quite a long time for that to take effect. But you just accept that. No one's having the absolute truth. Scientists are all striving for that. And then science as a discipline ultimately keeps coming up closer and closer to truth. And that's true not just with, with wolf research, but medical research and all other kinds of research as well. Absolutely. Mm. In relation to how people use the idea of dominance and alpha males and things in dog behavior and dog training and point to wolves. What are the inconsistencies there? Well, I, I tell you, I'm an authority on wolves, but not on dogs or even on dog training. Mm. And um, I often get asked this question by dog trainers or people who are interested in training their dogs. And, and I can't answer it because I, I'm not an authority on that. I can just what happens with wolves. I know that a lot of the dog trainers and um, people interested in dog training have misinterpreted some of uh, my articles. All I can do is keep saying what I know about wolves. And then if they misapply that, it's not anything I can do anything about. Uh, so I just, if when I'm asked about training dogs and applying any of this to dogs, uh, I don't have any information about it because I'm not an authority on it. It's really interesting to consider as well that you've you've obviously been working with wolves for quite some time now and you've seen governments and you've seen presidents and you know from Lyndon Johnson by the sounds of it through to Reagan through to the current administration have different policies environmental policies and so forth how have wolves done in the simplest terms since you started out as a population are they recovering and how are they doing now compared to when you started well, I'm happy to tell you that over the whole period of my career, wolves have just uh, done better and better and better. They are in the 48 states, for example. As I mentioned earlier when I started, there were wolves only in Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Michigan, and very few in the latter two states. Now they are flourishing in Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, Montana, Wyoming, Idaho, Oregon, Washington, California, they're, they're not thriving there, but they've now started recolonizing California. They've also moved into Colorado now. They're being reintroduced into New Mexico and Arizona. So in the 48 states, they're doing much, much better than they were 60 years ago when I, or you know, basically 62 years ago when I started. And um, in Europe, um, they're also flourishing. They've moved, you know, they were never wiped out of Eastern Europe. But in Western Europe, 60 years ago, there were about 100 in Italy. That's all that were left there. There were a few more in Spain. There were none in France or Germany and uh, very few. And uh, well, in fact, at that time, they weren't even in um, Scandinavia. Now, uh, they're in just about every Western European nation except the British Isles. And um, they're increasing uh, and include Scandinavia, where both Norway and Sweden and, and also Finland have wolves. In fact, Netherlands have them and Denmark now. So much, much better. I'm afraid that eventually they're going to be doing so well that we're going to have um, kind of a backlash because sometimes they also get into trouble 
when there's too many of them. They tend to kill livestock and all. But um, as population, wolves are, are doing very much better now than they were 60 years ago. That's a rare, rare story, isn't it, Harry? Oh, absolutely. It's so fantastic to hear, though. I actually, so I live in Portugal, David. I'm from the UK, but I know that there are wolves that have now come over from Spain to the northerly most part of Portugal uh, oh, yes. quite recently. And so that's amazing to, like you said, see their recovery. But what, from a human-wildlife conflict, in your experience, because obviously wolves have had such a bad history and have been so reviled by people, either through fear and misrepresentation of the species, but also, like you mentioned there, the fact that they can attack and kill livestock. What are some of the things that you have seen and you've learned over the years that make our ability to live side by side with wolves a bit better? Well, I wish I could tell you that we've learned a lot about that, and but in fact, we really haven't learned enough about how wolves. Um, I would say the main and that we've learned is that for the future survival of wolf populations, the best thing we can do is to preserve wild lands where wolves have a minimal amount of conflict with humans. Uh, national reserves, different countries have different names for the wilderness that they tend to preserve. I would say preserving as many of those as we can, as much wild land as we can, is the best way to preserve natural wolf populations. So Yellowstone has been quite a widely used example, David, about the benefits to a wilderness or an environment when wolves are reintroduced. I'm bringing this point up because Allerdale Wilderness Reserve in Scotland is considering, and they're finding it quite difficult, but they're considering trying to reintroduce wolves. It's within a fenced area, but they're trying to reintroduce them. And Yellowstone is a very well-known example but right in saying that when we introduce wolves back into an area it can have quite an enormous impact on the ecosystem and other animals and just generally the whole environment is that correct well it's sort of correct you remember i said that science is self-correcting yeah and science is in the process of uh, correcting some of the earlier studies that have gone on in yellowstone it is true, generally, I think most wolf biologists would agree to this, that when wolves are in an area over a long period, they tend to reduce the numbers of their prey. For example, if anyone put wolves in, the, in Scotland, they would tend to reduce the number of red deer, which would be a prime prey. And um, there is some evidence that in reducing those prey animals, it's in some cases helps the vegetation that those prey animals would have been eating. And um, by helping improve the vegetation, there is also some evidence that it helps various other species that depend on that vegetation. For example, uh, birds nesting in the trees and that type of thing. But the farther down you go from wolves reducing their prey animals, the more controversial the effect that's been proposed gets. That is, maybe in some cases, there are some evidence of the um, relationship with birds, say, um, more birds because of the more vegetation, because of fewer elk uh, as a result of wolves. But the farther down you go down that chain, 
the more variation you get and the less certain the response that you're going to get. There'll be many places where there would be no response at all when you get down below the wolves just reducing their number of their prey. In some cases, like national parks, where most of the natural vegetation has been preserved anyway, there would be more of an effect. But in so many places, humans have changed things that even putting wolves in where people have changed things doesn't really make that much difference because humans have changed things so much. So, for example, you know, in so many places where there's um, agriculture, we grow big crops of corn or or soybeans or something, wheat and all that. Putting wolves into areas like that isn't going to change anything that much. Humans have completely dominated that kind of area. So that's where we get back into wild lands and national parks and and nature preserves and those kinds of things. Those are the places where wolves can live better and where they may have more of an influence on the whole ecosystem. I'm really also really keen to hear the work you've done at the International Wolf Centre and what role they're playing in terms of wolf conservation and helping preserve wolves. Yes, the uh, the International Wolf Center, there was a real need to start the International Wolf Center long ago because it was very clear that wolves actually motivated a lot of emotion in people. In some people, it really was negative emotions. That is, they hated the animal because it kills other animals. And so some people hated the wolf because of that. Other people really looked at the wolf in a different way and saw that they were beautiful animals. They have a challenging lifestyle. They're the progenitor of our dogs that are our pets. And so some of these people really loved wolves. And as these two different uh, opposing schools of viewpoints came to be, they tended to produce information that was not really accurate. In other words, propaganda that tended to serve their own views. So we had some people saying that wolves are cruel because they only kill for sport. They only kill because they like to kill, which science says is wrong. They kill just to make a living in order to eat. And then we had other people saying that wolves, they really don't kill any big animals. They only kill mice and that makes them good. And of course, that's erroneous as well. And because we had people on both sides that were trying to promote their own viewpoints and the propaganda that served those viewpoints, we felt it necessary to start an organization that told the public accurate information about wolves. Accurate information about wolves is very interesting. It's important for people to know what the truth is about wolves, science-based information, in order to better make sure that wolf populations are able to survive. So we started the International Wolf Center as a purely educational organization that seeks to provide science-based information to the public. And um, our website is uh, wolf.org, O-R-G, and that can tell you all about the organization. But we have a visitor center in uh, northern Minnesota, and we have Facebook and all that in order to promote accurate science-based information about wolves. And that's the best way we know of trying to promote the sustainable wolf populations is to learn as much as you can about them. 
that's fantastic. I just wanted to ask you one last thing, I think, David. You've had such an incredible career. You have had more experiences, I can imagine, than most people in relation to the proximity that you've had to some of the most iconic species. And so when you look back on all of your experiences and all of the things that you've done and had the privilege to do, what are one or two things that stick out in your mind as something where you go, wow, that was something truly special? Well, uh, really learning just how hard it is for, uh, how challenging, I guess I should say, it is for the wolf to live. That animal has to travel every day in general. As a, I mean, it's highly variable, but roughly on the order of uh, 15 to 20 miles a day just to find something to eat. You know, they have to find enough prey animals so they can find one that is in some way inferior so that they can kind of kill it without being killed themselves. The animals, most animals they kill are large. Deer is the smallest one or um, mountain sheep, that type of thing. But a lot of them are the size of moose, elk, caribou, red deer, muskoxen, bison, that type of thing. And in order to find one that's weak enough or inferior enough for them to take a chance to kill it, they have to travel constantly almost. I mean, half their time is spent traveling. The other half is sleeping and then a little bit of eating in between. And um, that's the thing that's impressed me most about the wolf is just what a challenging lifestyle it has. And that's one of the things that have kept me working on them so long is trying to figure out all the different ways that they meet that challenge. Fantastic. Wow. I think Harry would definitely agree with me. Harry and I could chat to you for so long, David. We have so many questions, but um, it's such a pleasure to talk to you. Like Harry said, your work, you know, impacts the work I do on a daily basis almost. I just wanted to ask, with such an amazing career you've had, is there one piece of advice that you might give to aspiring conservationist scientists like yourself who want to follow in the footsteps of you? Well, uh, yes, uh, be persistent. This is a very a wonderful career, and um, many, many people want to try to do this kind of work. So there's a great deal of competition for this work, for these careers. So for someone hoping to actually have a career like this themselves, I would just say, do your studies at the universities. Study all kinds of science. Uh, we need a big, strong scientific background, and then persist in trying to get experience enough with um, the natural world. You can do that through volunteering, for example, for various organizations, zoos, uh, that type of thing. Get experience as best you can, and then just persist in your attempts to try to get a career in this area. The positions do exist. People do get into them. And in order to do that, you have to persist. That was a great episode, Harry, wasn't it? That was amazing. Like you said, it was such a privilege to speak to him. He's so knowledgeable, but also so down to earth and 
what a wealth of experiences the things he's seen being out in the wild there and spending months and years just observing these incredible animals in their natural habitat and learning so much about them that like we said has influenced so much about what we know about wolves and in turn has influenced dog welfare and dog behavior as well but such a pleasure to speak to him yeah and i think that one of the things that I got out of it, which I think is really important, is the idea that you don't always have to be stuck or rigid in your own views, that any sort of work like this is a learning process, isn't it? What I found really insightful was the fact that Dave has been on a, a bit of a journey himself in terms of doing his initial research based on captive wolves to then actually going and seeing wolves in the wild and discovering and changing his view. And he's been very open and honest about that and that's difficult and it's something that a lot of people in the animal welfare sector struggle with because it seems to be quite polarized and quite either you're with me or against me mm. sometimes i think to be a lack of a willingness to reflect and a willingness to sometimes change your views and people get quite dogged in them excuse the pun nice but i found that quite inspiring and insightful from david and just like you said just real humble experience getting to talk to him yeah i totally agree where he talks about science constantly evolving and research constantly evolving is such an important message because all of us that work in animal welfare and actually people that don't work in animal welfare as well, you know, we just have to look around at the world about us at the moment and things are constantly changing. And if we hold on to things that at one point we believe to be true, but then new evidence comes along and suggests that maybe we should revisit what we thought we have to be willing to do that. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to progress in animal welfare and the work that we do in our understanding of the world around us. And so it's such an important message to be able to rely on research and science and be willing to accept that it's an evolving thing. And what we knew yesterday might not be the same thing as what we know tomorrow. Exactly. Are you listening, Caesar Milan? Yeah, Caesar, who will not probably be a guest on uh, the Animal Chat podcast, but don't rule it out. I don't rule it. I chat to Caesar. I would. I'd, I'd chat to Caesar. Yeah. I've got some questions for him. <laughs> but uh, I'll have a chat with him. Yeah, we can have a chat yeah. with him. We just, you know, we just have a few questions. Anyway, Harry, as we said at the start of the podcast, we're going to have a wee break, a wee summer break. We are. And we're going to... And for those of you that don't speak North, that means a small break. <laughs> Listen, the Northern dialect is sacred, okay? And I will not allow it to be mocked too late <laughs> so yes so we're going to go away for a, a short time a couple of weeks but we are back when harry ekman we are back on august the 8th saturday august the 8th which is international cat day for a special international cat day animal chat podcast episode with ian mcfarlane talking about his work in animal welfare and particularly working with cats around the world, feral cats, trap new to release, projects to improve cat welfare. It's a terrific episode. I've known Ian for, oh, 20 years or so, and we have so many shared memories and stories. He taught me everything I know about feral cat management and trap new to release. And so it's a real cracking episode to listen to. If you have any interest at all in cats or cat welfare, this is not going to be one to miss, but you're going to have to wait a few weeks, but be patient because August the 8th is going to be well worth it. You sounded well creepy then towards the end, Harry. You love it. <laughs> so, yes. So be patient. Um, Harry, where can, I mean, people, the four weeks between now or however many weeks between now and the 8th of August, 
what can people do in that time if they are thirsty for some animal chat? Well, you know what? There's episodes out there. There's a whole season mm. one of mm. animal chat episodes with fantastic guests like, well, like who, Matt? Who have we had on? Who's this illustrious list of animal welfare celebrities that we've had on? We've had Tim Harrison. Well, we, Harry, we have fantastic episodes with Amy Dickman talking about lions and that. We have Laurie Marino and Charles Vinnick, two separate episodes, Harry, from the Whale Sanctuary Project, talking about whales and that. We have Lola Weber from a small organisation that no one knows or cares about called Change for Animals. Change for Animals Foundation. Talking about dogs and that, innit? Meat and that. And yeah. um, we also have Liz Tyson from Born in the USA talking about monkeys and that. Yeah, and going on tour with Aerosmith. <laughs> Yep, and we also have, oh, we have an amazing episode with Trent Grassian talking about vegetables and that. <laughs> That's exactly what Trent's episode is. We have Brian Faulkner. We oh, have yeah. a wonderful Brian Faulkner talking about genocide and dogs. <laughs> We've got Sam and Mark Green talking about Sri Lanka and tourism, I think. I don't know, something like that. No. I wasn't really paying attention to any of these podcasts. I know there's an animal theme that threads through them. I know they're all interesting people to speak to. But the only way you're going to find out is going on to the Animal Chat website or going on to where you listen to podcasts and listening to the bloody podcasts. If you've missed one, go on to the Animal Chat podcast and listen to it. Listen to the ones you missed. And if you've listened to one before, just listen to it again. You know you want to. Or... Share it. So go on animalchat.podbean.com and bloody well share it. Share it on all your social media platforms or social media platforms. One of those two. You can share it on either of those things. Yeah, exactly. So easy. So we will let everyone know when we are back. Follow us on social media. We will have a build up to International Cat Day again, August the 8th. That's when you're going to see us again. But in the meantime, folks, have a great week and see you in a few weeks. Stay safe. Don't go near anyone coughing. Wash your hands. Social distance. And thanks again for listening. Bye. Bye.